In New Jersey, we found some... Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. I'm Casey McLean. This week, we have, uh, I think, a pretty fun episode. It's only about half coronavirus related, so uh, that's good. We'll start off. <laughs> we'll start off talking about maybe a little update on the coronavirus situation. Then we'll move to uh, some of the things that Governor Murphy has been doing. Ten people were charged uh, after an engagement party was shut down. Let's talk about that. Price <laughs> gougers supplies was uh, seized and redistributed. Uh, very much pro that. I'll give you an update on the unemployment numbers. Talk about some blood donation requests. A pop up hospitals uh, or sorry. But probably multiple pop-up hospitals. hospitals. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> yeah. And the Battleship Museum requesting a loan and shopping limits at grocery stores. After the headlines, Casey will tell us all about the history of the fat sandwich. And I'll talk about the first Chinatown on the East Coast. An eventful, exciting episode this week. And, and again, I'm happy we're ending on some lighthearted things. Everyone has a grease truck story, and I wanted to bring the history to everyone. And I'm very excited to hear about the first Chinatown in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, on the whole East Coast, and it yeah. was in New Jersey. <laughs> so we will uh, we'll talk about that, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a great episode. Yeah. So I want to start off just giving a quick update on the uh, coronavirus that spread in New Jersey. I know it's kind of grim, but I think it's important that people understand the extent of its spread and how uh what the total numbers are and things like that so we're at 34,124 cases in new jersey as of uh okay these update december's are up today april 4th and uh it, it looks like it's basically doubling every two to three days which is kind of what we've been told like the rate of its spread and it's also exactly what you said weeks ago when we first started reviewing the coronavirus, you were saying specifically based on all the reports that it will basically keep doubling because it's almost like an exponential growth situation, right? Right, exactly. And the more that testing becomes available, of course, that number is going to increase. But it's the issue of people who are not getting tested because they're not available and they're not showing symptoms. And those people going about their everyday lives and possibly spreading it to other people who also can't get a test unless they show extreme symptoms. So Exactly. So these are definitely underreported, uh, as is the situation throughout the United States. And uh, that's why it's just extremely important that we maintain uh, social distancing and uh, take precautions like uh, we should be wearing masks when we go into public. Or if you can't get a mask, I, I can't. They're all sold out everywhere. You can make your own or use a use a scarf with good material that doesn't you know, uh, breathe so much. This was a, a thing that you can't participate in, but I saw online that some people are cutting their bras and using the bra, at, like the one cup, as a face mask. <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually pretty smart. So there are ways to, you know create your own mask and right. keep yourself safe, but also keep other people safe. Because I think the latest reveal was that the virus can spread from basically people speaking and the like microscopic bit that you're spitting on people when you speak to them unbeknownst yeah. to you and them. <laughs> we What's crazy, I just want to comment about that real quick, is there's been two developments in the CDC uh, in recent weeks. The, the first was basically a reversal on how the masks 
were uh, effective. Before they were saying masks weren't effective, but we got to keep the masks for medical workers, which makes no sense because it, it's not like the virus decides to not go after medical workers because <laughs> they see they have the mask. If it's effective for them, it's effective for everybody. And the, the other reversal has been that it's not merely kind of like airborne. I know it's like a very technical phrase, but like it's not airborne in the sense that the virus doesn't just fly around in the air. It's, it's on these like very small particles. And there was a question of whether or not like you need to like cough or sneeze or if you could just breathe and enough of the uh, fire, uh, much of the virus would come out of, uh, into the air and be able to infect you. But I, I read a report from German scientists back in like late March, I mean, uh, early March or February where they already proved this like <laughs> back then. So like, uh, uh, so it's it just I think what it comes down to is the CDC basically lied to Americans about the effectiveness of masks because they knew there was a shortage and we weren't doing anything about it. And yeah. I, that's the only way I can I can put it. And it's we're not here to really spin conspiracies, but yeah. if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, yeah. probably a duck. <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, Americans shouldn't have spent the first few months of the outbreak uh, laughing at Asian people in Asian countries uh, wearing masks. It's all out of that, like how they're just yeah. superstitious people who wear masks. So if it turns out they all have lower rates of infection because masks work. So anyway, we don't need to spend much time on that. I'll get into some uh, xenophobia during uh, um, my segment at the end of, after the headlines. So let's go to Murphy's Corner. Let's talk about what the governor's up to. I mean, it's been up to a lot of stuff lately because yes. of the coronavirus. He's very active. I just want to run down the latest executive orders that he's enacted. Last week, we talked about his last one. I mean, not his last one, but the time it was his last one on March 25th. And I'll just repeat that one. On March 25th, Governor Murphy signed an executive order requiring child care centers to close on April 1st unless serving children of essential workers. So that was the last one we covered in last episode. This how would they? On- sorry, how, I just thought about this. How would they know? I think I want to say that like with the would they like I guess they would know the occupation of the of the yeah, children's I parents. Think, I think you have to for childcare like state your work, you know what I mean, to in case of emergency. So I oh, want to say sense. also there yeah, might be a possibility where some businesses, I'm not sure if the um, essential workers who this falls under. So I'm assuming it's going to be nurses and government workers. Some companies will have on-site daycare, which is, you know, very forward thinking and very advanced. So I'm assuming that maybe there's a concentration next to someone's work because you drop off the kid on the way to work. So maybe there's a situation where there's a high concentration. Maybe they're spreading awareness daycares are to certain essential workers that they're open for business for their kids. But again, I think that's the thing with government. You make this executive order and I could dive deeper into it and like follow up and see exactly how he's determining this and how daycares are responding. But that's uh, a lot of work. Um. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to go through that now. I was just I, I didn't even think of the logic of that. You know, it was yeah. self-reporting by uh, uh, um, the daycare workers and the actual uh, customers. Um, yeah. So what was the thing that he did uh, uh, after that? After that, so March 28th, Governor Murphy signed an executive order directing healthcare facilities to report data, including PPE, so it's personal protective equipment, inventory and bed capacity on a daily basis. This mirrors, I think, an earlier report where they had to, I'm not sure if he made it happen, but I'm trying to look on his past executive orders, but I don't see anything immediately. But I know there was another order, whether it was him or the legislative unit of the state, they passed an order to report the figures of coronavirus, I think every day, 
I remember talking at the last episode. So I think it might be the Unledger scan that they did that. But that's good to know. So you have a on a daily basis an update about, you know, hospital capacity. <laughs> it's vital. And then on the first of this month, so April, Governor Murphy signed an executive order to remove barriers to healthcare professionals joining New Jersey's COVID-19 response and provide projections for frontline healthcare responders. So Apparently, the executive order, it's authorizing the Division of Consumer Affairs to temporarily reactivate the licenses of recently retired healthcare professionals and grant temporary license to doctors licensed in foreign countries. The executive order also temporarily permits certain healthcare professionals to perform acts outside of their ordinary scope of practice and grants broad civil immunity to healthcare professionals and facilities providing services in support of New Jersey's COVID-19 response efforts who are acting in good faith. He says, quote, my administration is working tirelessly with our hospital systems and the Federal Emergency Management Agency to expand bed capacities, reopen closed hospitals, and erect field medical stations to prepare for additional COVID-19 cases. He says, we need trained, experienced medical personnel to ensure proper staffing as we build out this new capacity, which is why we have put out the call to retired healthcare professionals to join our fight and support existing workforce. By signing this executive order, we are removing bureaucratic roadblocks to quickly bring more healthcare professionals into our efforts and provide additional flexibility and protections for our frontline responders to aid in New Jersey's response to COVID-19. So way to go, Murphy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's good. I, th- I think it, uh, New York actually just did a similar measure as well. Yeah, and it's I think that's Murphy's you know business background of looking at the full experience and knowing everything he's passing. It's thought out and allows for things to be built on that because you can't just make everything happen overnight and you can't make everything just be up and running and have people trained because this is a medical response. You know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have time for two to three weeks of like training volunteers. Trained, you need to get people who already have the uh, yeah. education who, who can't apply it. This for, isn't for a reason or this isn't the Democratic primary. We can't just, you know, rig it up and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. start passing out doctor certificates to every person and then just infect the whole state. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so good on Murphy. I'm really proud of him. Yeah, that was that's a good measure. I hope this helps. Yeah. And then on the second, Governor Murphy signs executive order authorizing commandeering of property such as medical supplies, which we'll talk about (laughs) in the headlines later. And then on the third month, Governor Murphy, so this is yesterday, he directed U.S. and New Jersey flags to fly at half staff indefinitely to honor those who have lost their lives or have been affected by COVID-19. And that is what we're looking at from Murphy's office right now. Yeah, that last measure is a nice touch because I think uh, we're going to see a lot of people, um, unfortunately, dying from this as this goes on. And, and it looks like we're going to be with this for a, a while. I'm reading reports for the peak might not be until May or June. Anyway, it's definitely not going to be by the end of this month. So, uh, yeah, um, on the uh the reporting to the hospitals are uh, reporting of the hospitals to the government, the state government about like how much PPE they have. That's probably has to do, my guess, with getting the governor a better idea 
of the situation of each hospital and what they would need to get and request from the uh, federal government. Uh, what is, do you think that's probably what it's for? I think that is because they need to, and that's thing that's been talked about is like the way hospitals function and the way they, they like prepare, they don't hoard equipment, but you have enough in storage to last you the week or to probably last yeah. you a month or the next month. Of, of, right u- now, of usual uh, yes. uh, load too. They like they don't prepare for like mass pandemic related no. stuff. Unfortunately. And then, <laughs> and then in one of his press conferences, Murphy was saying that he needs the day to day tally of equipment because he may only be able to get another day for you immediately. You know what I mean? Enough equipment for a day at a time. And that's not how healthcare is like to operate, of course, like no one would. <laughs> and right. the fact is, is that healthcare workers, once we lose them either to the disease or to the symptoms and them having to be quarantined for two weeks, once the the front line is gone, there's, there's no one else, you know, like we exactly. the capacity of them being able to respond to it decreases. Uh, yeah. While that, while at the same time, the actual m- amount of infections and hospitalizations increase, so it's a very uh, tough time to be in. Very tough. You want to talk about another two press conferences that are related to this whole uh, "let's get stuff oh, with the federal stockpile." So, uh, listeners, I don't know if you've uh, heard this, but uh, the president's son-in-law and uh, Jared Kushner, and for whatever reason, he's in charge of something, had a press conference about the federal stockpile and the state's access to that federal stockpile, where he said this. The first the first issue that we've been dealing with was really the ventilators. That was the number one, number two, and number three from all the states. Uh, what we've been finding is that people have a lot of these requests based on the models. And what we've been trying to do over at FEMA is say to the states, well, if you would like ventilators, we need to see uh, first look in your states, right? So, for example, in northern Jersey, they're going out to southern Jersey and they're finding uh, ventilators and trying to relocate them to where they have their hotspots. Uh, the second thing that we've done is we've asked them to survey for alternative ventilators. Dr. Berg spoke before about the anesthesia machines and the ability to um, to convert them to be ventilators. So we're asking people to be resourceful inside their states before they come to the federal government. Uh, the third thing we've been asking states to do is to provide what their daily utilization rates are. So uh, everyone's asking for everything. One congressman got a call from his local hospital saying, I need 250 ventilators. And he said, well, you don't have a COVID patient within four counties. Why do you want 250 ventilators? And he says, well, we just want to be safe. We're very nervous right now. So what you have all over the country is a lot of people are asking for things that they don't necessarily need at the moment. And the job of of FEMA and and Admiral Plovchak has been to try to make sure that we're getting the real data from the cities, from the states, that we can make real-time allocation decisions based on the data. And right now what's happening is a lot of the different cities and states are providing uh, FEMA that that information. We're talking to them daily. They're updating that information daily, and that's enabling uh, the federal government to make much more uh, informed decisions on where they position ventilators. You also have a situation where in some states, FEMA allocated ventilators to the states, and you have instances where in cities they're running out, but the state still has a stockpile. And the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then 
use. So we're encouraging the states to make sure that they're assessing the needs, they're getting the data from their local uh, local uh, situations, and then trying to fill it with the supplies that we've given them. The same thing with the mask. So the N95 mask uh, is actually an item that wasn't used as frequently in the medical profession before this. It was used mostly for diseases. Uh, so speaking to a lot of the doctors and hospital administrators, they would say they used actually a very low percentage of the N95 masks. Uh, what the president and the vice president were able to do with Congress was to get the waiver so that you could expand the pool. Because a lot of the masks were used to do for the construction industry. So now there's a much bigger pool of masks in the country. Uh, there was a stockpile. They distributed that based on where they anticipated a lot of the need would go. But a lot of that still is stuck with the states, and it hasn't trickled down to the right places within the state. So I would just encourage you, when you have governors saying that the federal government having, hasn't given them what they need, I would just urge you to ask them, well, have you looked within your state uh, to make sure that you haven't been able to find the resources? So you hear it. It's not about the uh, states. Uh, <laughs> the federal stockpiles were uh, the federal government. It's not the state government stockpile. Uh, Trump was actually asked about these comments uh, in the press conference from yesterday. Oh, thank you. Yesterday, Jared Kushner said the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. What did he mean by our? Oh, what are you asking? And I mean, even yeah. the fact that taxpayers from What's every that? state What's that? It got you. It got you. No, you sorry, the word okay. Our. Our, you know what our means? United States of America. That's what it means. It means the states. Our. Our. It means the United States of America. And then we take that our and we distribute it to the states. So why did not you say that we it's have not to. supposed to be state stockpiles that they Because we need it for the government and we need it for the federal government. But to when the states are in trouble, no, to also keep. It to if it's not to the states. To keep to keep for our country because the federal government needs it too, not just the states. But out of that, we oftentimes choose, as an example, we have almost 10,000 ventilators, and we are ready to rock with those ventilators. We're going to bring them to various areas of the country that need them. But when he says our, he's talking about our country. He he's talking, excuse me, he's talking about the federal government. I mean, it's such a basic, simple question, and you try and make it sound so bad. You ought, to be, I, you ought to be ashamed to of yourself. No, you know what? You ought to be ashamed. Way, it's such Baker. a simple question. He said our. An hour means for the country. An hour means for the states because the states are a part of the country. Don't make it sound bad. Don't make it sound bad. Go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, back here. You just asked your question. You just asked your question in a very nasty tone. Let's go. Mr. President, I gave you a perfect answer. You know it. Go ahead. Well, just to follow up on that, when when we have the federal stockpile. I mean, isn't that designed to be able to distribute to the state? Sure, but it's also needed for the federal government. I almost don't even know what to say to this because it's clear that Jared Kushner is an idiot. And it's clear that Trump will just defend his family uh, and himself, like no matter what, and try to accuse. Because the he media. has to. Yeah, like, has he, to. he has to defend Kushner because he put Kushner, first of all, he put him in charge of making peace in the Middle East. Let's not forget that. <laughs> oh God! That was, yeah, that was his number one mission for like uh, his presidential term is that Kushner is going to solve that problem, and he didn't. So far, maybe there's still some time in. It's there. not going to happen. He he can't just. He's not equipped to, to handle that. <laughs> and um, the whole reasoning that 
the federal stockpile belongs to the federal government and it's not the state stockpile. It's just like blatantly stupid. And yeah. Trump in the beginning, as you can as you heard, he tries to say like like, oh, yeah, you're just taking his comment out of context. Like what you're what he said was it was our stockpile and the states are the federal part of the government. So that way, therefore, he has to he says something like we have to divide the hour up over all the state. It, it was it's just, you know, yeah. an insanely poor way of explaining it. But then when he's asked a follow up question later, he just reverses it and says the same thing Jared Kushner says. And basically says, like, yeah, no, the states aren't getting anything from the federal stockpile. Uh, I think it's directly related to Trump being an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it is Trump being an idiot. But it's also um, there was a recent report. um, Sorry, not a report. He had another press conference not too long ago where he basically said that governors who don't praise him might not get stuff. Uh, We're seeing it already. We are seeing it already. So Florida managed to get 100 percent of its requests from the uh, federal government, whereas uh, uh, New York, New Jersey, and California, all of which have uh, uh, governors that have been critical of Trump uh, over the years, have only gotten a fraction of what they've requested. And you saw uh, the governor of California uh, recently starting to praise Trump. And it's not because he's he's been one of the harsher critics of as a governor of um, Trump. And it's not because he suddenly actually thinks Trump's doing a good job. He's just so desperate. And I almost don't blame him. And he's that kissing he the ring. To- because that's, yeah, that's how that's he operates. He, that's what he needs to do for his state. And and it's crazy. You saw Murphy kind of do it a, li- a little bit, too, saying that you know, the federal government's doing an OK job or something. I forget the exact wording, but it's just like. And it's also whenever Trump does a press conference and he does not mention New York or New Jersey in regards to the coronavirus, then, you know, he's specifically not saying New York or New Jersey because yep. he's upset with New York or New Jersey. You know, it, it's crazy that you can speak about the pandemic in the United States and not mention those two states or their governors yep. by name because you Everyone, know, yep, it's a ahead, choice. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that bothers me uh, a lot about it is his comments he had recently about New York in the same press conference. We have a federal stockpile and they have state stockpiles. And frankly, they were many of the states were totally unprepared for this. So we had to go into the federal stockpile. But we're not an ordering clerk. They have to have for themselves. Now, some of the states were in good shape. Some of the states were not in good shape. That's probably something you could expect. We have been helping states. We have been spending a tremendous amount of time, effort and billions and billions of dollars on making sure that they have what they have. I mean, take New York. We built them hospitals. I built them four hospitals, built them medical centers, sent a ship with a thousand rooms and 12 operating rooms. And and then on top of that, gave vast numbers of ventilators and vast numbers of surgical gowns, equipment, masks, everything else. Now, they had a chance to order ventilators over the years. They had a chance to order a very big, but they didn't choose to do it. We were there and we helped them. And I think the governor of New York is very thankful for for the help that we gave. But we have a stockpile. It's a federal stockpile. We can use that for states or we can use it for ourselves. We do use it for the federal government. We have a very big federal government. So th- those recent comments we all just heard, that that worries me greatly, not just for the people of New York, but also like what's gonna, what's that mean for New Jersey? Is he not going to send us ventilators uh, because uh, we should have prepared for this three years ago? Well, there's nothing there's nothing we could have done three years ago. It's the federal government who's supposed to uh, the CDC who's supposed to coordinate these kinds of things. And uh, it, it's clear he's just uh, trying to benefit states that like him. Like, for, for, is it Florida's a swing state? Yeah. 
uh, in, the, in the election. He wants they're going to get everything that they want. Uh, New Jersey, a... New York, go vote Democrat all the time. Uh, I think we're be- and so does California. I think we're being punished because uh, we're, the states are largely Democratic voters that aren't going to go for Trump. That, that, that's I don't say it's lately. That's a murderous way of handing stuff out. He's condemning people to die. Yeah, because of his ego. And that's the thing with his election. He he had Kushner running numbers. And I remember that quote from Kushner where he was like, yeah, we were in the basement money balling the numbers and like figuring out what states we need to basically win in order to get the get the nomination. And it it's not a paint by numbers situation. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> it's life or death. And if you're not taking care of these states that are most impacted right now, then you're going to have people fleeing those states and spreading the disease across. You already have people. There was an influencer in New York who apparently bought an RV and did like a a trip out west. And she's like, we're just going to be out west until this virus is done. And a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are fleeing New York and coming to New Jersey or going from New Jersey to Pennsylvania and Delaware and Maryland, like Connecticut. I know New Jersey is trying to ban people from going to their summer houses and making them stay at their primary residence. And it's that's what's happening now and is going to continue to happen because people are going to lose their, you know, their rights and be told to stay home. And when they don't want to stay home the next month or the next month or the ne- they're going to flee. So if you're not taking care of the epicenter in in the country, then it's going to get worse. And and the worst part is because these other states like, for instance, Florida, aren't taking it seriously. It's so Florida only, I think, this past week decided to lock uh, its state down in a similar order uh, that Murphy gave. But uh, they give exemptions. So it's like you can still go to church, uh, <laughs> which is ridiculous because you're just going to spread it in church. And it makes it actually the virus, the virus knows the coronavirus knows you're in there. church. <laughs> they shut off the spreading mechanism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's no uh, longer contagious when you cross that threshold. The, any kind of religion, yeah. it knows. Jesus protects people from the coronavirus. That's it why shuts- we know no, no Christian has so far uh, received the coronavirus. It shuts it um, down. So what's going to end up happening? I guarantee this. Everyone listening, even <laughs> if we get if we flatten the curve adequately in New Jersey, New York, and the tri-state area, and we get our infections under hold, these other states, which haven't done anything or have done things too late are going to have a surge in infections as they already are in, in places like Florida. And people are going to then flee those states and go back towards these ones uh, in the east and spread it because there hasn't been like a lockdown of interstate travel. And I know that's no. scary because it's like no one wants to be confined into a into a state, but it's the longer we drag this out by doing nothing the harsher the the mechanisms end up being later to address them, assuming the government size even do anything. And Trump doesn't just give up in like next month because uh, he wants everyone back to work because he wants to stop. <laughs> up, so. It's Easter. It's Easter. Yeah. Uh, okay. At least he extended it to April 30th, I think. But up so next. I have a yeah, up next. Um, so uh, according to NJ.com, um, Murphy's not eyeing New Jersey state worker layoffs yet amid coronavirus outbreak. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that yet. So he said uh, this Wednesday that he's not yet considering laying off any state workers in New Jersey because as the economic activity in the state kind of like really dwindles, uh, tax revenue also goes down. 
And with New Jersey having to pay out record numbers of unemployment claims, which I will get to later, the state's definitely going to be uh, strapped for cash. And we don't really have much reserves to uh, fall back on. It's just the way the state budget and revenue has been for the past few years, actually pretty much longer than that. But the question of the yet, it's I have a feeling Murphy doesn't want to do this soon. Right. Laying off state workers and uh, because one, it's unpopular. And two, uh, it won't really be a good thing. It's something that you want to do. Uh, no, no one wants to do. Sorry. So it's something that is done. In, well, really in two scenarios. Uh, one, if you're like kind of trying to rebalance the entire workforce and you just kind of like are like a right wing governor and decides to lay people off because you want to crush unions or, 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 you know, get rid of pensions. That's one way you do it. And then the other is like Murphy's not really doesn't fit into that mold. He pretty much would only do it as a last resort, it seems like, though I'm willing to be correct on that if he ends up doing it in like a week or two. So I don't know. Do I think it's likely? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I do. It just it, the basically here's what's going to have to happen. Congress just passed that stimulus a week ago uh, or two at this point. I'm, I forget how much how long it's been, but it only it only provides a certain amount of relief. Most of it's going to corporations. And uh, some of it's going to us, you know, we're all going to receive it. Well, most of us are going to receive $1,200 in, in the mail at some point. Who knows when? However, as this crisis develops economic, we're looking at May coming around or June for a peak. And the more businesses are going to get closed and there's going to be more layoffs, which is going to cause more unemployment and more strain on states budgets as they're not collecting taxes and they're spending more uh, money trying to pay out unemployment insurance claims. And the pressure to lay off workers is going to be is going to uh, state workers is going to be there unless the federal government pretty much bails out the states. I'm hoping Congress will, will do something like that. But I'm kind of you know, I, I'm not really too confident that they will, to be honest. Uh, they only bail out big banks and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like large corporations, they'll give money to airline industries because they spent the 45 billion in the past decade uh, on stock buybacks so they didn't have money to you know help themselves in bad times so they needed 50 billion so it's 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 whoever's helping their re-election campaign let's be honest yeah yep exactly so i don't really have much to say past that it's just unfortunate uh, we need to push that our congressional uh, representatives put together a plan that will bail out the states and secure make it uh, so that uh, a state and federal employees have job security and are not laid off because they because ultimately that's going to cause the worst point. They'll just get thrown on unemployment. Uh, they won't have maybe making as much money. They won't be able to pay their rents and mortgages and utilities and, and all those kinds of things or food and items. Uh, so it's just, yeah, we, we need we need a response that protects workers and working families, not throws them out and uh Leaves them to either coronavirus or uh, slow starvation from unemployment. I have another uh, update of something that Governor Murphy has done. So he's called for a postmortem of the federal response to coronavirus. According to CNN, on Thursday, he called for an assessment of the federal response to the coronavirus once the crisis itself is handled. Murphy said, on the one hand, I'll leave history to the historians in terms of how we've got here. But on the other hand, we've got all of us have to do one of the biggest postmortems when the dust settles on this in the history of our country. We have got to figure out how the heck we got into this spot 
and make sure we never get into this spot ever again. I, I agree with the sentiment uh, a lot. I think we need to have a kind of 9-11 commission style investigation into what exactly did the administration know? We knew in Jan- we know in January, for instance, they had a briefing and this was going to be a pandemic and they needed to start preparing. And then they didn't and they downplayed it. And well, we've talked they about said that. It was the, like the flu. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a hoax, a democratic hoax, all that kind of stuff. So we need we need that. We need an investigation into what states are getting material and why are New York, New Jersey, California and other I think Illinois as well, other Democratic states not receiving the ventilators because uh, their governors or politicians either been critical of Trump or uh, he doesn't think that they're going to vote for him in the uh, general election coming in November. And that's another thing. I think Cuomo has been talking about it a lot, about how all the governors are having to bid on items basically against each other. So it's pitting state against state. Not even state against state. Uh, also, I, I read that the federal government's also bidding on these. So Cuomo wow. was was furious because he was like, "What? Like, why are the federal government like? Who are we bidding against? Like?" And then they were like, "Oh, we won't do it anymore, or maybe we will." That that was basically <laughs> Trump's response. I, I read that in Financial Times. That's like, his what? favorite thing to do. Is like, maybe we won't, but maybe we will. <laughs> yeah, and it's just exactly. He like never gives a real answer to like. And anything. he's not like the the press conference yesterday. He was saying that coronavirus is going away. And people are like, but it, but it's here. He's like, but it is going to go away. I'm like, okay, well, you're not technically wrong. It'll yeah. probably go away eventually. So you are correct with that. Like, <laughs> literally, no one is saying it will be here forever and it will always be like this. <laughs> like, literally, no one is saying that. Yeah. Oh, but he wants he wants that win of I said it was going away and it went away. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. You have that. He said nobody's doing a better job containing the coronavirus crisis. Except for, you know, the countries that actually are containing it. But (laughs) (laughs) nobody has better health care than we. Okay, I like to like, where are you learning this? Like where? (laughs) Although there was an interesting thing where it seems like he's trying to outflank the Democrats again. I don't know if you saw that. The Democrats have like corporate Democrats have the most. How do I put it? Like worst messaging, worst ability to like take leadership and also like have any political imagination or ambition in this country because no one wants to stand out yeah because there's nothing for them to gain you know exactly what I mean? for standing so, out right now so they called for a reopening an extension of the obamacare exchanges so that way these people who are getting kicked off their insurance can buy health care and insurance on the exchange let me explain that again democrats in all their wisdom aren't using this moment to like say Bernie Sanders to push for healthcare for everybody guaranteed free at the point of service, like a Medicare for all kind of system. They're saying, you know, we know you have, you just lost your job and you're not really making any money money and and you're worried about rents, utilities and putting food on your table, but don't worry, we're going to extend the time period in which you can uh, buy into the Obamacare market exchange. What what the hell is this? (laughs) But as I was saying, the outflanking, uh, now, again, this is just words. I I have no idea if Donald Trump's actually going to go through with this and Republicans, who knows. But he said that he wants to extend uh, Medicare and Medicaid to cover all coronavirus treatment. If he ends up following through with that, that actually puts him on this one specific issue. Just so it's clear to anyone listening on this one specific issue. <laughs> that means he is going to outflank the Democrats from the left on the health care response. Yeah. And it's just baffling. I'm just like they're they're setting themselves up to lose in, in November. It's, it really are. It's that it's that politic move that happens so often in our country that is so upsetting. Of uh, Democrats don't want the Republicans to have a win, 
and the Republicans don't want the Democrats to have a win. So even if they agree, we see it in our own state, like there are Democrats versus Democrats, <laughs> aka Sweeney and <laughs> Murphy, who together they're not going to get anything done because they don't want a win for the other person. And it's so bizarre and so egocentric. I just, I can't even, I can't, <laughs> it's baffling. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then you but, have the other thing is like, how the bailout money is being used. He's already saying that he's not going to listen to oversight. That's another thing this uh, commission that people are hoping is formed needs to do. I mean, the, well, first of all, we need a commission now to have oversight of how the bailout money is done, which I think Nancy Pelosi did state that she was going to do. We also need to make sure that is he really going to use his time to have him and his friends profit while all of us suffer? Yes. I mean, yes, 100%. that is the answer. That's 100 percent the answer, everybody. Yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, we need to have like a a. a a committee that will actually an unbiased, nonpartisan, yeah, independent, in-depth in committee that that whose results are a hundred percent open to the American public. We it can't be one of these things where it's like, oh, the redacted, page, the, the redacted, the entire page on Saudi Arabia's role in nine eleven was redacted. <laughs> and then we find out, oh, all of them were funded in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, so, speaking of Nancy Pelosi, uh, I wanted to contrast what Murphy said to Nancy Pelosi. So you know, Murphy's got a pretty decently strong call for a postmortem uh, investigation into all this. Does our the main like the most powerful Democrat in the government now have an equally strong call? Pelosi said there, you know, we need something and it has to be bipartisan, blah blah blah, that kind of crap. But then she says the goal of an action after action review is quote not to point fingers, but to ensure that it doesn't happen again in the manner in which it happened. That's not how not it works. Point, not to point fingers. <laughs> so like. Oh, there just there was a person who received an intelligence report saying it's going to turn into a pandemic, but we can't say who that person is because he's president. We don't want to point fingers. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> that's, again, a politician acting with the interest of their own skin. You know what I mean? She doesn't want to. She already the impeachment trial blew up in her face and yep. now she doesn't want to do another repeat. And she's I can't imagine not saying, yeah, we're going to point fingers, you know, like that's what you need to say. We're going to find out who's responsible and we're going to make sure it's widely known. And you know, it's people who were elected and put into power by people who are elected. Like, you know, that's who is responsible. So if she's not going to point fingers, is it going to be like this collective thing where they say like, we, they... the government, all of us, <laughs> we failed you, the American people. And it's like, so does that mean Nancy Pelosi's taking blame for for a part of like, I don't understand it. It's I don't want a one page report that says, I'm sorry yeah. for me. Goodbye. We did all we could and we <laughs> tried nothing. <laughs> so I think that's uh, is that everything in Murphy's Corner? Everything that uh, wraps up Murphy's Corner. All right. So I think let's jump into uh, some of the headlines. I'm going to so let's talk about. Ten people were charged in New Jersey after they shut down an illegal engagement party. This is reported on April 1st in uh, NBC News. They say 10 adults, including a 99-year-old man, were charged Tuesday after police in New Jersey shut down an engagement party that violated the state's order against social gatherings. Around 4.30 p.m., police in Lakewood, New Jersey, near the Jersey Shore, were called to a residence on a report of a social gathering. Ocean County Prosecutor Bradley D. Bilheimer and Police Chief Gregory Meyer said in a joint statement, officers found a group of people, including children, on the front lawn and inside the home. The homeowners who hosted the engagement party, Yakov 
Kaufman, 47, and Edie Kaufman, 45, were charged with six counts of child endangerment for each of their children who was in attendance and with violating any rule or regulation adopted by the governor during a state of emergency. Uh, the state emergency, just everyone remembers, was issued on uh, March 21st, and it included a ban on social gatherings such as weddings and parties. And, uh, this, this isn't is, the first, and it's not going to be the last. <laughs> we're it, at a we're at a time where people are not listening, and people are going to die because of it. Like that. Yeah, that's well, I mean, I I think we need to be fair. We we pretty much like ruthlessly mocked all these people that went to uh, a spring, spring break, break, right? <laughs> yeah, and we said like, yeah, like of course you didn't need the government telling you to stay home to realize it was a bad idea during a pandemic to do this. But I think it's kind of, you got to mock this. Like now the government is literally ordering you to stay home. Yeah. I'm not one who believes that you should just do whatever the government says because they ordered it. But if you like rationally think through this just for like, you know, half a second, where you're like, well, you know, there is a pandemic and a lot of people could get sick and die. I could get sick and die. My family could get sick and die. Maybe I shouldn't have an engagement party, which could happen literally any other time. You could literally just postpone an engagement party. Yeah, it's an engagement party. Yeah, like, there's no, nothing official that happens at an engagement party. Yeah, postpone an engagement party or plan for an early funeral. That's yeah, really your options here. And uh, there were eight other uh, residents apparently uh, at the engagement party, and they were all charged with uh, violating this rule. So I think um, it's good that the governor is taking it seriously because one of the things we questioned around March 21st or whatever episode it was uh, for that was: uh, is there any teeth to this stuff? Like, are they going to actually like? do it because if not like yeah americans are just going to do this stuff yeah <laughs> right? if you don't like, punish people like, for baby. the crimes they commit then it's going yeah. to keep going and it's going to influence other people to keep going and not listening yeah so and and we're having a lot of cases at, at, at the time of the reporting of this there was eighteen thousand cases and now we basically have double that which is pretty crazy you think about it, it's from april 1st to 4th so yeah what i said doubles every two days anyway what can you do <laughs> Stay yeah. inside is what you could inside. do. <laughs> Don't have engagement parties. As the as Murphy tweeted out, no Corona parties. Yeah. <laughs> They're illegal, dangerous, and stupid. We will crash your party. You will pay a big fine, and we will name and shame you until everyone gets this message into their heads. So you've been officially named and shamed on Jersey Matters this week. Uh, <laughs> don't do it. We'll name and shame you as well. We're pro-naming and shaming people. <laughs> yeah. Especially rich people. I'm not saying these people are rich, but I love yeah. shaming That's number people. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Up next, price gouging. What'd you price hear about gouging. that? Yeah, this is actually good news. So uh, we mentioned before how these awful people were just buying up all these like supplies before we I think we mentioned like toilet paper and other things. And then they were trying to uh, basically sell them for at elevated prices or price gouging during this disaster. Well, in, in this case, medical supplies were seized from a price gouger and they're going to distribute it to hospitals. According to ABC News, hundreds of thousands of masks and other pieces of metal equipment were seized from a Brooklyn man, and they will be distributed to medical workers on the front lines treating the coronavirus patients in New York and New Jersey. According to the Department of Justice, the equipment included roughly 192,000 N95 respirators, uh, nearly 600,000 medical uh, gloves, 130,000 surgical masks, procedure masks, N100 masks, surgical gowns, disinfectant towels, particulate filters, bottles of hand sanitizer, and disinfectant spray. So uh, th- this man, the uh, uh, 43-year-old uh, Baruch Feldheim, ordered the supplies in order to take advantage of the COVID-19 crisis and was trying to sell them uh, as much as 700% above market value. So I think it's really good that not only is he getting charged with this kind of uh, terrible behavior, not only is it exploitative to everyone is involved. It's a very antisocial behavior, which I by meaning that is like we live in a as I mean, we live in a society and the whole <laughs> purpose of living in a society is that we like try to help each other 
and uh, have a better life than we would otherwise have if we acted individually and purely in a self-interested manner. And that's like very difficult for a lot of people to understand because we're kind of taught that being selfish is like greed is good. The Gordon Gecko thing, as if you know, yeah. the whole point, as if the whole point of that movie was the, not the opposite. Anyway, I could talk about that forever. But this man and price gougers like him disproportionately hurt others for no other reason than to try to make a buck. And that's a sick, sickening, exploitative act that I think like everyone intuitively understands when we're in like a crisis, like pan- like a pandemic. They throw the book. I, for, I forgot he was charged. He was charged with a number of different things, but I'm happy to see that. And this is the dangerous thing about neighbors having to report neighbors. You know, if you see your neighbors stockpiling that massive amounts of medical supplies, like is he, how much space does he have? You know what I mean? And like, it's just so bizarre and so insane and so selfish that I can't, I hope he goes to jail for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, assuming again, this is kind of alleged. So just to be fair, assuming yeah. it's true, that he did these things. I saw his lawyer claim that he's not charged with uh, price gouging, but lying to federal authorities about what he was doing with those things. But we'll see. I mean, if you're, <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I understand the whole innocent until proven guilty thing. But like, why would you have that much? Yeah. As just an individual person at a time like, other than to sell it. So anyway, so uh, should I dive into unemployment numbers? Yes. All right. So everyone understands the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics works is every week at the end of the week, they put out numbers about the previous week's unemployment insurance claims. And uh, that's just because the data takes that long to compile and we won't have an idea of what the unemployment numbers are until of the previous week until you get to you know, the end of the week. But uh, the end of the month's week is, is particularly important because it gives you a perspective of like the entire month. So uh, on, on April 2nd, we, we received basically a full accounting of what, what March's unemployment claims were like. And um, I just kind of want to go through just a little bit what, what we see here. So nationally, for the week ending in March 21st, unemployment claims were 3.2 million. And this was huge. I think we talked about it back then, how this is like was uh, um, larger, highest on record. And there was a lot of speculation by economists. What was the following week going to be like? And most economists had they said it was probably going to be a little higher, 3.3 million, maybe 3.7 million. The highest I saw was maybe 4 million. And uh, well, now we have the numbers for that. And it's it's truly it's truly crazy for the week ending in March 28th. So last week, unemployment claims reached six point six million and uh, no one expected it to be that high. Uh, that makes the total unemployment claims for the last two weeks of March around 10 million alone. And uh, this is a record pace of unemployment that we, we've never seen this before. Um, this this I mentioned before when we had when we had three point three, three point two million uh, unemployment claims that this is like. Stat, the rate of job loss was staggering, going even higher than the rates of job loss during the Great Depression. This, yeah, is <laughs> really bad. So I have a breakdown of, a, of the New Jersey numbers, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about them a little bit. So for the week of March 21st, I want to kind of show you how quick this is developing. We had 155,454 initial unemployment claims. That means people who put in that for day. unemployment new. That yeah, that week, that week. Yeah, yeah, all new claims, not people who are just merely... Uh, you know, they've already on unemployment and they were doing it. So it's 155,000 new claims. To give you an idea, the previous week, it was 9,457. Wow. So, yeah, so it was a huge jump. And every uh, uh, what's interesting is anytime a state has more than a thousand increases or decreases. Right. So they have more than a thousand increased unemployment claims. 
they have to explain to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like, why is that? And they'll just provide, like, reasons. So, like, in a normal uh, year, it'd be something like, say, you know, uh, uh, an automaker in Detroit closed a, plant, a factory and... Um, fired you know, thousands of people. Fired, fired thousands of people. Spike. They would say, like, layoffs in the auto industry or something like that. So this was for the week where there was 9,457 losses. This is what they said. They said layoffs in the accommodation and food services, transportation and warehousing, and educational service industries increases due to the COVID-19 virus. So, and that's pretty much what you're going to see every single time. Uh, so for the week uh, of March 21st, they said the same, the exact same thing. For the week of March 28th, uh, so the week after, we had 205,515 claims, uh, which makes put basically all of March together. We, uh, New Jersey had more than 370,000 unemployment claims in one month, which is crazy. And it was basically all said due to layoffs in accommodation and food services. So accommodation being things like you know hotels and things like that, uh, transportation and warehousing and educational service industries. I thought this was interesting. I looked through all of March's numbers. No state anywhere listed a decrease of more than a thousand. Every state pretty much was listing increases in unemployment. And um, every sign that I saw on the line uh, by uh, economists and financial analysts, they were shocked by that six billion, six million number. But all of them thought it was going to get worse in April. So it's it probably it, it's going to get worse <laughs> in April because as the stuff goes on, small businesses are closing. They don't have the cash. You're going to lose uh, um, larger businesses start to lay off. I saw concentrations of wealth in certain areas. So. Mm-hmm. Like for New York example, for New Jersey, the tri-state area, you have a lot of people who they do have high incomes. And I'm talking about high incomes, meaning you're able to afford vacations regularly. You're going to the different states for the or overseas. But if we're talking about the U.S. and the hospitality entertainment industries, these people aren't traveling anymore. You know, like people aren't going on vacations. People aren't visiting their relatives and staying anywhere. I think some hotels, even in New Jersey, are closing down and even like short-term rental properties are closing down with the exception of accommodating, you know, essential employees, like first responders, that kind of stuff. And I think that's something that's not really touched on is the wider impact of people who they still have their job, they have resources, they're not spending. And if they're not spending, then people aren't employing. And you're not going to have these people who have accumulated all this wealth bailing out their business. Like I think last week I talked about Gordon Ramsay shutting down his his restaurant and firing 500 employees. Gordon Ramsay's not struggling. He's not going to struggle for a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah. His kids probably won't even struggle. It's one of those things of we have for so long depended on this ideology that if you work hard, you can get a lot of money. And if you're a hustler and you have that drive, you're going to be good. But all that's out the window now. Like, doesn't matter how much you hustle. doesn't matter how much you're an entrepreneur. doesn't matter how like educated you make yourself. If you're a person who is a lower class, upper middle, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, if you are anything that does not have thousands and thousands of dollars reserved, you're basically screwed right now. Like yeah, people are firing people exactly. and people are not hiring people. Like that's what's happening. Yeah, hiring is basically on freeze everywhere. Financial Times had a great article on uh, uh, March 30th talking about U.S. retailers because um, there's plenty of those in, in, in all throughout the country, but in New Jersey especially. And one of the things that also I think is interesting is just, you know, we're entering a spring and summer, nicer weather, where usually the Jersey Shore would be a main source of, of like tourism income. We have all these tourist industries there. They're probably still going to be closed for yeah. 
a while. And that, I mean, the things that that's going to do to uh, those local economies there are crazy. But the Financial Times was saying that uh, U.S. retailers teeter on the brink as 630,000 outlets close. And again, this was uh, March 30th. So I just want to read a little bit from this, get an idea of this. It's, it's even the large businesses that are, are having trouble right now. They say that while Amazon, Walmart, and a handful of other operators have a chance to emerge from the crisis in a stronger position thanks to a boom in online deliveries and the rush for household essentials, much of the rest of the sector is facing a historic crunch. Almost 630,000 outlets in the U.S. have been forced to close due to fears about COVID-19 and restrictions on movement to contain its spread. Uh, With the National Retail Federation calculating that $430 billion in industry revenue could evaporate over the next three months. The question now is how many of them will reopen? So they start listing major retailers that are uh, having issues and they're laying off workers. They list uh, uh, Victoria's Secret's owner, L Brands, are furloughing uh, workers. You have uh, all dividend payouts have been postponed at Macy's and Nordstrom. You know it's bad, by the way, when they postpone dividend payouts to their shareholders. When rich people aren't paying themselves, <laughs> you, you know the state of Macy's and Nordstrom are really bad. They also list uh, Best Buy, TGX, uh, TJX, and Kohl's as among 126 discretionary consumer companies. They're drawing on a total of $86 billion from credit lines, meaning they're borrowing from what little from what places they can to try to maintain business. And then they basically say, uh, here's just a small list of businesses that basically are at risk of failing within three months to a year. Best Buy, Macy's, Neiman Marcus, J.C. Penney, Asina, J. Crew, PetSmart, and JC Academy. has been struggling for quite some time. <laughs> a lot of these have. Best Buy, for instance, has been. Yeah. But like a lot of these have. I actually didn't know PetSmart was in such dire straits, but a lot of these businesses have been struggling, and this is going to put them over. But they employ a lot of people. And it's also, it's with these, these stores in particular, I know for a fact that Best Buy in particular has been, it's the Amazon effect. You know what I mean? So Best Buy, in order to compete, they've been focusing a lot on their customer experience, their in-house customer experience, which means they have been ramping up their in-store designs. So if you go, if you were to go to Best Buy a few years ago, it was a little rundown. Uh, <laughs> you didn't have these immersive rooms that they create. And same thing with Home Depot. Home Depot has been these stores that are really reliant on people physically going there and seeking advice and seeing the how it would sit in a room, like the inspiration, the Pinterest kind of thing of it all. And the same thing with TJ Maxx, like the TJX. So that's TJ Maxx. And I think um, Home Goods and a few other places, it's places that heavily relied on that foot traffic. It was an experience that you were focusing on in order to make people buy essentially things that they really didn't need. So you were going in for one thing, but like a Home Goods, you go in and you have clothing racks, you know, designer items that are on sale. You have, you know, essentially home goods. So you have throw pillows, blankets, things that everyone just touches and like tries to imagine in their space and all this design focused stuff. And it's all experience focused stuff that you don't have anymore. So the, unfortunately the pandemic has closed those doors and people are not having that experience and result. The result is everyone's seeking those items. If they still think they need them through Amazon and other online shops. Yeah, exactly. So like Walmart was a little slow to it, but they caught on that you need to have a decent online presence to be able to order stuff. Whereas like places like Best Buy uh, and others, um, sometimes even if they have an online website, it's all like pick up at store. Yeah. It's not like necessarily a full delivery service. So 
Yeah, these these businesses are going to be hurt, and they think like I, I was saying, this could go on, um, could peak in June, and peak doesn't mean it ends. Yeah, right. Peak means if it peaks in say May, then you have to, you know, it's it has to go down afterwards. It just means it's, the cases go down. It doesn't mean it ends. It's not like you hit a cliff and it's just over. Yeah, um, you, you keep falling until you hit the ground. Exactly, exactly. So if it peaks in June, we're looking at more than three months of shutdowns like this, and there's going to be a lot of businesses that, that don't survive this. And I'm, I'm worried that we're going to come out of this uh, with just greater consolidation of these already gigantic monopoly corporations on the one hand, so a greater concentration and centralization of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. And on the other, um, uh, these mass unemployment and reshuffling of the workforce that leads to people by necessity having to take uh, lower paying jobs to survive. Yeah, we need to have protections against that. That that needs to happen. So on that note, uh, do you want to tell us about blood donation requests? Yes. So not sure if everyone's aware of this, but I am a regular blood donor. I just recently started donating platelets because I am AB negative, which is the rarest blood type in the world. Not to brag, but brag. And because of this, I'm always hyper vigilant about if there's a donation drive around me, I'm first in line, I'm ready to donate. And so when I saw this headline from <laughs> from the patch for Morristown, the headline is Morristown man battles coronavirus needs blood donation. So the man is on a ventilator in the Cooper ICU and his family is searching for a potential plasma donor. So those of you who don't know, if you donate any kind of blood product. You have whole blood donation, you have platelet donation, and you have plasma donation. And so this man, he needs he needs plasma. And his name is John. I'm going to butcher his last name, Pratsnakis. <laughs> but he's fighting for his life. And his, da- his daughter said Monday that they are seeking out anyone who has fully recovered their battle with a virus to donate blood, but particularly donate the plasma from the blood. And They don't, in this article, no one says exactly who to contact or where to contact. So you could possibly contact the hospital itself. You could possibly Facebook stalk and hopefully find him or his family and reach out that way. But they also don't say in the article what blood type he is. Um, So these things are critical for people like me who regularly donate, who I would be ready, willing, able to donate if I knew that my blood type was a match for his. And I'm one of those people that... Even though it's a risk to go out right now, I would donate my blood because it is so rare. And I have been trying to donate at certain places, but they aren't constantly running platelet or plasma donation opportunities at certain blood banks. It's usually whole blood for the most part, which is all well and good. But there are opportunities for you to donate, for example, whole blood simultaneously as donating platelets. So I'm really able to do that and I'm ready to do it, but there's not always the opportunity there. So I wanted to point that out, but I also wanted to point out if you are in the media and you are doing a call to action, you know, really make a call to action. Say, this is his blood type. This is the contact information. You know what I mean? Like, or, or at basic. least if you're a journalist, have something set up where it's like, you know, for more information, email me at like whatever, and then they can put you in contact with. Whatever, yeah. like don't just write an article that has the, the not even the bare minimum of, of information you need to make this work out. It's it's baffling. But um, if you are a blood donor, like make sure that you're looking at your local donation spot. First of all, look and see if they're still open. 
a lot of them, a lot of drives have closed. So company sponsored drives, different kind of charitable drives, they are they're they've canceled because of corona. So you could only, I think for the most part, donate in hospitals and donate in different kind of blood banks. So look up. I usually do the New York blood drive a company, but it's whatever. <laughs> I usually look up the New York blood drive because I'm a, a registered member donating there for years now. Um, so if you look that up, you can possibly find a blood bank near you where you could donate. But there is a massive shortage right now for all blood types. And if you can, if you're healthy and you haven't had certain medications or any kind of alcohol in your system for the past like two days, you can donate, I think. But just, you know, do what you can for your neighbor because this is trying times. (laughs) And then I also, on the same note of hospitals, I wanted to bring up this headline about pop-up hospitals showing up around New Jersey and NewJersey.com, New Jersey's first pop-up hospital to battle coronavirus could be open within days. God knows we need it, Murphy says. There is a new facility that is opening up. It has 250 beds and could easily add more. And this is in the the Meadowlands. It's a pop-up field hospital in the Meadowlands Exposition Center in Secaucus. So this will help, you know, offset the number of hospital beds in actual hospitals. And because we're going to, the surge hasn't happened yet. So we're going to need a lot more beds for a lot more patients. And that means a lot more healthcare providers available and ready to basically be brave on the front lines of this. So are these uh, pop-up hospitals for coronavirus patients or are they for people who, to stop them from going to the regular hospitals where there are a lot of coronavirus patients, are they for like non-coronavirus related things that could be treated in them? Or, or I mean, I have a feeling it's for coronavirus. I'm just curious uh, if yeah, it says in the article. It says to help handle the surging numbers. Uh, the Meadowlands one is to help the surging numbers of patients at hospitals. And there's another one that's opening up in Edison and another one that's going to be opening up in Atlantic City. The Edison site, this article says, will have two hospitals with totaling of 500 beds. And it's scheduled to open April 8th. And the Atlantic City site has 250 beds. And it's slated to be open in April 14th. So I think it's just to make enough room for anyone. And I think most hospitals, if you have an emergency, they will take care of you. But for the most part, you know, you are having hospitals that are being designated Corona hospitals. And you have ICUs that are specifically Corona ICUs. And that is also because, in my opinion, you're having nurses who don't have and medical professionals who don't have PPE. And they have to take care of these people. And it's almost guaranteeing that the nurses will either get it or spread it. And they cannot cross-contaminate those areas. Yeah, that's, so, what that's what they're talking about. A lot of nurses and doctors are speaking out about how they don't have enough stuff. And they're being punished by their uh, either the hospital administration or um, uh, in the event uh, early in this outbreak, there was somebody uh, that worked for. Uh, a hospital, I think it was in Seattle, and they were like, hey, we have the coronavirus here. This presents all the symptoms. They look like they tested positive, and they sent the results to the CDC. The CDC basically told them, like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I was really early in the uh, crisis. So, like, we're seeing this kind of very short-sighted thinking by hospital administra- administrators who I've heard they don't want to scare non-coronavirus patients who don't wear masks with them, in the room with them. And it's just, it's so short-sighted. It's so dumb. It's such an like, obviously HR, anyone who's ever dealt with HR anywhere in the world. <laughs> Has uh, uh, knows exactly where they're coming from from this, and, and like is just baffled about how these people exist. But anyway, we don't need to dwell too much on that. Um, 
The last two are just, you know, FYIs, the headlines. So Battleship Museum seeks $2 million to, and this is what the Art of Courier Post said this, Battleship Museum seeks $2 million loan donations to stay afloat amid COVID-19 outbreak. Ah, so Carol Kamengo <laughs> wrote this article. I bet she was just itching to post it because she's like, afloat, yeah. <laughs> it's a ship, get it? But the historic battleship New Jersey survived fighting in three major wars, but it's combating an invisible enemy that could financially sink the ship as oh a God. public museum, the coronavirus. So the state ordered closure of the battleship New Jersey Museum and Memorial on the Camden waterfront is causing an income loss that may jeopardize the ship's museum's financial stability, it's official said. So it shut down about two weeks ago and prompted the museum to furlough more than two-thirds of its 88 paid full and part-time workers. And it's pleading for the public to make donations for the the museum, the floating museum, which is averaging a loss of $10,000 daily in income. And it's it's also coping with frozen state aid. So that's another thing. I think that the National Park Service also closed a lot of national parks. I mean, but it's not the same. Like parks are, for the most part, pretty low cost. And if funds are frozen, then it's kind of okay. It's not okay for the people who work in the park service, but the park will still be there. You won't have to liquidate any kind of park assets to right. <laughs> stay afloat. You know what I mean? But this is a situation where this is almost like a landmark institution. You know what I mean? And they're applying right now for a Small Business Administration Economic Injury Disaster Loan, SBA, for $2 million from the new $2 trillion congressional relief package designed to help families laid off employees and close businesses to weather the virus's economic impact. So we'll see if the battleship stays afloat, but... You just can't help it. You can't help it. I mean... I do hope it, it's a pretty iconic uh, museum and it's it's cool. Um, I forget when I went there. Everyone's uh, gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those things of when you have kids, you bring your kid there because that's what you did. And you're looking for things to do with your kid because and that are historic and educational and you don't want to go to the aquarium again. Or you're so. just a battleship <laughs> enthusiast. Or you just really... <laughs> it's battleships. <laughs> you go to the army surplus store and then you go to the battleship. <laughs> exactly. And the last headline I wanted to bring up was that there are new limits for shoppers inside New Jersey grocery stores to slow the spread of COVID-19. And you experienced this with PetSmart, right? Or uh, It was actually Pet Value. I pet went value. to go get some uh, cat food and I saw on the door it said uh, only uh, two, custom- or, uh, two customers are allowed at a time. And then it was like crossed out two and then there was just like one. So like they, they actually reduced the amount from a previous limit. Um, there was actually no line. No one was there okay. when, when I went. It was strange uh, experience. Uh, I can speak to it real quick. It was just uh, I you know, usually you go into the pet value and it's just like kind of open and you just go wherever you want. Uh, this they had like different items around the store for forming like a taped off line straight to the cash register. So you couldn't like wander. And then you got there and then you just told them what you wanted and then they got got it. So I actually thought that was really clever because yeah. it stops people from touching so many things, kind of limits the people in the store. And, and it made it easy because I could see from the outside how many people were in the store and whether or not like I, I should enter. So yeah, that's smart. I think I wonder if grocery stores, I mean, the article will get to that maybe, but if grocery stores are going to 
in not enforce, but suggest heavily that people do the either delivery or the the pre-order pickup thing. You know, like a stop and shop does that where you can order your groceries online and you park in the parking lot and you give them what number spot you're in and they'll bring out your groceries for you. Yeah, so, I think I think ShopRite does that as well. I, I hope more of them do implement that and uh, or at least uh, get something together that makes it that streamlines the process while also uh, preventing people from uh, uh, crowding around in these stores. Cause yeah. it was only last week I went grocery shopping and it was just like packed. And I was like, uh, it's just, you're not, no one's practicing social distancing, but there's also it's- no rules in place for them to do so inside the grocery store. There was like no regulation. So I hope, I hope they get better at that. Yeah, because once you, if you do delivery, grocery delivery, and you do on-site pickup del- uh, groceries, it keeps people, you know, the public from spreading COVID-19 potentially, but it also protects workers in the same the same way of they're not having to restock items. They're not having to interact with the public. It's a much more safer situation. So yes. this, this article says at least two dozen uh, ShopRite stores in New Jersey have begun limiting the number of shoppers allowed inside at one time as several locations of the grocery store have confirmed cases of COVID among employees. So they're saying also that um, stores in both Garwood and Oldbridge were among locations to announce temporary restrictions on their Facebook pages, explaining that the, quote, the maximum number of customers will be roughly 30% of the store's regular maximum capacity. I want to know... If they're just posting on Facebook, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> not everyone has a Facebook and especially older generations, they might not know to go to that specific store's shop, like ShopRite Facebook page to get these kinds of announcements. Yeah. And the other thing is businesses need to be more proactive instead of reactive about this kind of stuff. So ShopRite put the uh, these kinds of policies in places. Sounds like only in the stores where they previously had employees get coronavirus so why are they waiting for the stores where the like why are you waiting to put them in place for stores where they uh, employees haven't gotten it yet it should just it should just be everywhere but that's basically it on grocery stores for me and that's it for the headlines today do you want to tell us about the history of the fat sandwich i do want to tell you the history of the fat sandwich so mike are you ready i am ready this this is a true story this came to me last night in a dream And I had the dream that I was reporting on the history of the fat sandwich because I was thinking about what can I do to bring some positivity, some like good news to the public. And this is what I came up with. So (laughs) I hope you all enjoy this. So and for those of you who don't know what a fat sandwich is, it's a type of sub sandwich that has all kinds of greasy foods on one bun with all kinds of condiments. You have the option to select a number of tried and true fat sandwiches, or some places will allow you to customize fat sandwiches or make up your own completely. So you really have no no limits to what you can put on a sandwich if it's a fat sandwich. The, and, the classic one is like what? Chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks, French fries, marinara sauce. Yeah, that's all the fat Daryl. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They have names. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone can agree it's just what the doctor ordered after a night of binge drinking on Hamilton Street or bar hopping on Easton Avenue. You know, you just see the light in the distance from that parking lot and you just knew like that's where you needed to go. You needed a fat sandwich from the grease truck on the corner of College Avenue and Hamilton. And it was just it was like a like everyone was like a moth to the flame. You know what I mean? Just it, hordes these, of drunk people. In, were these invented in New Brunswick? They were. 
So I'm gonna get. Uh, to, I'm gonna tell you all about it. <laughs> I, I need to know. Yeah, because many a times I've been saved from uh, uh, just like my drunken uh, stupor by going to uh, the, the fat uh, the grease trucks and so, getting a fat sandwich. So I'm sending you a photo. Okay, are you ready? So we're gonna go back in New Jersey history. So imagine that corner of College Avenue and Hamilton Street, and it's now classy collegiate apartments and eateries like Surf Taco and Jersey Mike Subs. But there was a time before all this where, do you see the photo I sent you? Yeah, it's like of uh, old. Describe this to the viewers. This is our listeners. This is a it's an old house, old old fashioned <laughs> house that looks like it was on the corner of College and, and Easton Avenue. Yes. So it's a gorgeous Victorian house. It's like almost four stories, depending if you count like that tower in the front. Yeah, but, yeah, there's, there's a tower. Yeah. So it's back in 1873 in New Jersey, in New Brunswick, on that corner, you have that gorgeous Victorian house. And the mansion was called the Gray Terrace. So it was built by a carpet manufacturer named Robert N. Woodsworth. So what a good name, you know. <laughs> so in 1873... He built it, and legend has it that there was gold hidden in the walls from an unsolved bank robbery. So in this article I was reading from the Kilmer House 2012 archive, there were no implications that Woodsworth was involved, but he did some like shady bank transactions from what I could read from the very, very small print archive transcript of the trial. But it seemed pretty weird for there to be a legend about you that bank robbers would conveniently hide gold in your walls while you then have all these like shady checks that you're cashing. It, something doesn't track with that kind of. Sounds like he was involved in a bank robbery. Sounds like he was a little bit involved. But if there are any bank robbers out there that want to hide gold in my walls, I will house it and hopefully take a little bit of the gold for myself. That's the deal that we could do. <laughs> Uh, that, makes you, that makes you an accomplice now. I mean, editor, <laughs> cut that out. Eventually, after Woodsworth leaves, Robert Wood Johnson moves in with his family. So the Robert Wood Johnson of the Johnson & Johnson founding fame, he moves in there because the location was so convenient for him because he was at the company's headquarters, which is still standing and is still the headquarters for J&J. It's just a block away. So he had this beautiful short commute and he was living in this mansion. And while they lived there, the house had three libraries, greenhouses where they grew like rare orchids, like such a fancy old timey rich person thing to do. And the house was after he left, it became it was granted a landmark status, but then eventually became a frat house. I don't know. It doesn't come hand in hand to me that you can be a landmark and then become a frat house. There must have been some kind of property exchange that isn't on the record anywhere I could find. Yeah, was there like a murder on the property that just decreased <laughs> its value? Like what, what happened? <laughs> Who knows? But essentially, I think that was like the nail in the coffin for the property because frats, I mean, there are some frats that are prestigious. Like they aren't, you know, the 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 kind of frat that we all think about when we think about a frat house. So I don't know what they did to it, but eventually it exchanged hands to Rutgers University. And that's when they ended up demolishing it and put up a parking lot, you know, like the song goes. Uh, and apparently also when it was a frat, the fraternity would make their pledges climb in the walls to find the gold of the legend. So it's just like, I don't know. It's sounds just like very things, sounds like things got dangerous. 
things got a little dangerous. Uh, they probably they were hazing them, I guess, because I think it's I don't I don't know. That doesn't seem sound of sound mind thing to do. So Rutgers takes it, knocks it down. And this parking lot, if you probably guessed it, was the parking lot we all came to know and love as the house of our favorite grease trucks. And it's the, the only thing that survived from the Victorian structure. If you look at the photo, that stone fencing that enclosed the property is the same fence that was around the Victorian mansion. Wow, uh, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either. And I remember walking around it at night, being annoyed that I had to walk all the way around to get into the entrance of the grease trucks. Yeah, and I same. had no, <laughs> no idea why it was there. It's just so crazy. So... The grease trucks arrived around, and so in the 1960s, the property was demolished and the parking lot came to fruition. And the grease trucks arrived in like the 1980s around then to accommodate the Rucker students between their classes around Voorhees Mall. So you, there you have, what are the famous halls that are there? You have Murray Hall over there. You Scott have Hall, I think. Scott Hall. You have Voorhees Hall. <laughs> There's a bunch of different like lecture halls in this yeah. area that is uh, they all kind of border a uh, how would you say it? like a um, it's, it's almost like a park. Yeah. Area like it's a nice greenery area for uh, students and anyone to just like walk through. And then across the street, you have this parking lot, which is where these grease trucks, I guess, were started to be located at this point. Yeah. Right? And there at the um, between classes, you can go to the grease trucks and you could get breakfast, lunch or dinner when every time you wanted to. They were once allowed to be open until 3 a.m. But in the 90s, that was pushed back to 2 a.m. to coincide with the bar closing hour in New Brunswick. And now this is the location where the birth legend of the fat sandwich comes to us. So the legend has it that a Rucker student, possibly drunk, invented the sandwich late one night when they wanted a snack. So they went to the grease trucks and asked them to put together a sandwich with all their favorite foods. And this is according to the best of So this one unnamed student <laughs> is supposedly the, the founder of the fat sandwich. But then there's also contention on the story because some restaurants claim that they were the ones that created the fat sandwich. But who knows? We're here to speculate and... Think about golden walls and <laughs> urban <Bank> robberies. Yeah. <laughs> so the original fat sandwich was called the Fat Cat, which has a double cheeseburger, fries, dough, mayo, and ketchup. And other fatties include the Fat Moon, the Fat Cocoa, and the Fat Sam. Those are some of the original ones. And eventually, in 1997, the most famous popular fat sandwich, which we mentioned earlier, the Fat Daryl, was created, which was chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks. French fries and marinara sauce. So, what was oh your favorite, Mike? What was your okay. favorite one? <laughs> so, yeah, actually, back in the day, the Fat Daryl was was my favorite one. But I just recently had this is before the lockdown. So, just so it's clear, <laughs> uh, it was actually I think our second recording. Yeah. Is that what when we did it in New Brunswick? Yeah, yeah I, I was like, I want to walk down there because I haven't been to New Brunswick in the college campus since pretty much since I've gone to Rutgers. So I was like, oh, let me walk around, look at stuff. And I was like, I found the new building where they have this stuff, which I'm sure we'll get to. And I went in there and I was like, um, oh, what do I want? And uh, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian now. Um, not pushy. But I, I got the uh, <laughs> I got the um, it was called the fat vegetarian like Indian. And it was so good. It, it was uh, French fries, mozzarella sticks and those 
the, the, the like the falafel, like chickpea balls. Also, by yeah. the way, falafel is not Indian. It's 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 uh, like a Mediterranean, Mediterranean. like Arabic <laughs> uh, kind of thing. So <laughs> it kind of misnamed. But anyway, it was it was delicious. Wow. Yeah, yeah. mine was the fat mojo, which was and I, I would still get it today. So it's chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks, French fries, honey mustard. But I'd also order either hot sauce on it if I, I could. Or if I was in a rush, I would just get it and then put hot sauce on it at home. But really, you could make up whatever you wanted. And everyone has their signature fat sandwich order. If you asked your friends at Rutgers, they all knew exactly what they would get. And that was just the thing. Like you order rapid fire and the people in the restaurants or in the grease trucks knew exactly what it was. And it was just this this little community of... They were cheap, too. They were so cheap. Like, it was six, that's the other thing. Yeah, 6 or $5, right? $6 for like, it was like eight or nine inches of a sub, which is everything on it. And if you yeah. were to buy the ingredients separately, it cost you like $30. And, and, and it was like, like 3000 calories. Yeah. So like at least. if you were smart, I did this one. So <laughs> I bought one and then I just, I think I bought like a fat Daryl and I'm like, could divided it up and eat like a third of it now, a third of it Throughout later. And then, yeah. Yeah. And, then, and I like had like, that was my, the only thing I ate. Now I do not endorse doing this. It's not healthy at all, but it, it was delicious. Yeah. For a college kid, you know, your metabolism yeah. is still there. You can still yeah. do it. And then, and then you don't, you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, I felt really weak. I couldn't finish my, uh, <laughs> my like fat uh, veggie Indian. I like ended up starting taking some of the French fries off because it was just too much. And I was so like, what, dense. Has, what has happened to me? Yeah. And then also uh, the man versus food. There used to be the fat sandwich challenge where you had to eat. What was it like? Five of them? Five of them within. Was it a half hour or an hour? Yeah. So imagine. How and, and, then, and then you get to make your own. And that was and you get to choose your name. Yeah. Name, that's what it was. Yeah. That was the, that was the challenge. But the, the man versus food guy couldn't beat it. I remember yeah. that. Like He couldn't do it. Yeah, he came. That was really cool. And he failed. Yeah. And I always thought about wanting to do it myself because there was a time where I used to be a really big eater and that was when my metabolism was high and my stomach was just ready to expand and I can't do it anymore. I probably could if I really put my mind to it, but I used to eat like five McDoubles. So like a fat sandwich was nothing to me. I was like, okay, I could probably eat <laughs> <laughs> if I needed to, you know, gun to my head, eat five fat sandwiches and I probably could. Would it be a nice sight? No. Would I throw up? Probably. But... <laughs> But everyone who knew and loved the grease trucks through the decades that I was there. So the they were whole, basically in this parking lot. Sorry to cut off. But they were in this parking lot for decades, right? Yes, for decades. And there were people. I remember one time I was at the grease trucks and this limo pulled up and there were these, I guess they came from like the, the state theater or something. They, they went to see a show and they were very dressed up. Like they must have seen like something very classy. And they come out of the limo and... Oh, like I heard the are the grease trucks still here? I'm like, yeah, but they're first of all, I was drunk. I was like, yeah, they're gonna they're here, but they're closing, and they had to they stopped there just specifically to get grease the fat sandwiches of the grease trucks because that was just their tradition. Like everyone, no matter what your race was, what your class was, like everyone, what are like literally what your class was, freshman. Sophomore, junior, whatever, senior, super senior, super, super senior in some cases at Rutgers. <laughs> everyone <laughs> knew the grease trucks and everyone knew their fat sandwich order. Like that was a rite of passage if you went to Rutgers or even if you stopped by there. Like even if you were just like raging, you live yeah, in Piscataway. I, I, <laughs> I have a few friends who didn't go to Rutgers and uh, they've all been to New Brunswick and every single one of them has had a fat sandwich. So it's like a it's like a thing that people do when you go to New Brunswick, you get those fat sandwiches. And they're out of 
they're out of uh, New Brunswick now. It's like spread. I've seen them elsewhere. Yeah. And they, I think um, Hoagie Haven in Princeton now has a menu with fat sandwiches on it. Like the impact of the grease trucks and the fat sandwiches in particular, that kind of community that it created has expanded. And now everyone can order 2000 calorie sandwiches and eat them in a sitting. Like it's just tradition. But this was the golden era. And around 2013 in August was where this golden era ended. So the grease trucks were removed from the parking lot to make way for a new set of buildings, which is what you can see there today. So there are grease trucks still scattered around Rutgers campus and a couple of trucks um, have transformed into restaurants. But I, I don't think it'll ever be the same. There was something about stumbling in the night. <laughs> just towards the light of the grease trucks uh, for a fat sandwich that can't be recreated anymore. You know what I mean? It's You can find, I think, a grease truck. Sometimes there's one out front of uh, Alexander Library. And sometimes there's just, but you don't know where they are. And it's very, it's sad. Um, yeah, you have to go to their restaurant like I did now yeah. uh, for like a consistent location. You're, you're right, though. There is something about just like going to the grease trucks. It, it was it was like untamed. It was unregulated. It was wild. There was just so many <laughs> people crowding around these uh, uh, trucks, barely coherent. Yeah. But just everyone understood Eating. the principle <laughs> of a market exchange. Five dollars <laughs> for that for that uh, fat sandwich and it like unified us all. Like I've yeah. seen, I've seen fights stop. I'm, I'm, this is not yeah. even a joke. I've seen <laughs> fights stop because people were like, you are in line for a fat sandwich. Get yourself together. Yeah. And people just, it was, it was crazy. It's it's different. You go, you go in there and it's just like a couple places to sit and it's yeah. not the same, but it is just as delicious. I'll say it, it was really good and, and also, probably healthier. Cause it's probably not as dirty. Yeah. <laughs> And they also, and this is the last remnants of the Victorian mansion from the from the top of this segment, that stone defense they also took down when they created the the modern development. And you know, there's it's just I don't know. It that's the complete history of the fat sandwich. And as we, you know, as we move forward in time, it's it's nice to look back on what used to be. But that's the history of the fat sandwich. Well, maybe I, I, kind after, of, go huh? I was going to say after all this is over, maybe I, that's my reason to go back and get another fat sandwich because I wish I could have when I was doing the research on this, when I had the dream about it, I was like, oh yeah, but now I think I have to make it myself and that's not as, that's not as fun. And it's yeah. like three times as expensive. One of the things I like about this story is just how like uh, the practice of making the fat sandwich was kind of like preserved because there was like a worry when they redeveloped the parking lot into like a, a gigantic student uh, dorm and like center that like uh like what was going to happen to these like iconic uh grease trucks and like where were they gonna go so i am glad that they have a like a building where they can at least work out of and um make these uh sandwiches still so it's not like this uh kind of tradition is lost it's just kind of been like carried yeah. on in a different way yeah. now mike do you want to tell me about the first yes so on the, the east coast it's the first chinatown on the east coast so i i think I think in order to talk about it, we got to kind of like roll back and talk a little bit about xenophobia, you know, the the kind of fear and hatred of Chinese people, which is kind of what made me want to talk about this because it's it's happening now uh, with the coronavirus. It actually started a little earlier in modern times, kind of really with in recent history with President Obama's pivot to Asia 
where you started to see in the media like anti-Chinese rhetoric really pick up, especially among the kind of right wing media. Unfortunately, xenophobia is is not new at all. And in the mid to late 1800s, Chinese people began emigrating to the United States. And Chinese immigration coincided with the 1849 gold rush in California and the great railroad projects that uh, were happening all across the West and Midwest. And because of this, uh, Chinese people largely participated in the mining and railroad industries and worked in like absolute miserable conditions. So directly following the economic boom of the gold rush, there came like an economic depression uh, with a record number of unemployment in California. White mining laborers blamed the Chinese for stealing their jobs. Uh, you had people like Dennis Kearney. He was the leader of the Working Man's Party of California, pushing to have Chinese workers excluded from California altogether. You had the editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, write a very disgusting editorial that, that actually supported this demand, which was actually very popular to exclude the Chinese from California. I just want to read the kind of things that he I was saying. I also want to say oh, this ahead. is a, a story as old as time that keeps repeating over and over again. That's one of the things I found most shocking was like I knew a little bit about the history of, as we'll get to, the Chinese Exclusion Act and other things like and the kind of xenophobia it's been for a while. But like when you look at what's going on today and you see record unemployment starting to happen in this case there's not a gold rush but like we're at the end of an economic expansion going into unemployment and then you have a disease that uh, appears to have originated in china and uh people calling it like the wuhan virus the kung flu the chinese disease all really turning into like this uh a racist blaming of of Chinese people who are who are becoming like an other that doesn't exist uh as as part of our like in group it's, yeah the outsider it's, yeah, it's really uh, it's really disturbing, especially when I think as I read what Horace Greeley says, you'll see some of the same rhetoric going today. So this editor of the New York Tribune wrote, they are for the most part an industrious people, forbearing and patient of injury, quiet and peaceable in their habits. Say this and you have said all the good that can be said of them. They are uncivilized, unclean, filthy beyond all conception, without any of the higher domestic or social relations lustful and sensual in their dispositions. Every female is a prostitute and of the basest order. The first words of English they learn are terms of obscenity or profanity. And beyond this, they care to learn no more. Can I Plan also say when yeah. I was first learning Spanish, like that's what everyone wants to know is everyone wants the to curse know. words. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I learned the first, when I first learned French. <laughs> I learned a little bit of Mandarin. I was like, I want to learn the curse words as well. Yeah. Like, everyone does that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's also... I'll get to it in a second. Yeah. Clannish in nature, they will not associate except with their own people. The Chinese quarter of the city is by a, is a byword for filth and sin. Pagan in religion, they know not the virtues of honesty, integrity, or good faith. And in court, they never scruple to commit the most flagrant perjury. So racism is not about logic, right? You yeah. can just see this person is literally writing an, art, an editorial supporting the popular demand to exclude Chinese people from California on the grounds that they're clannish in nature. Yeah. And they don't want to associate with anyone but their own people. That was the thing they're, that raised. I literally wrote that down yeah. as to underline it. Clan, like you only you can't say they are clannish in nature when you are, in fact, the one that's, you know, 
trying to keep them from infiltrating your clan. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't need to go word from word from our line yeah. from line for all the uh, uh, stuff that's said here. But that's you're so seeing, insane. If you think about you think you think about some of the things that you're, you might hear about um, what some higher up people in the government referred to uh, uh, Mexicans, uh, for instance, or like even some of the things you're hearing right now, where they say, you know, they're, they're, it's much more coded now. It's, uh, you know, oh, it's not that. We're not talking, of course, now talking about the Chinese people being filthy and, and just like propagandize all that stuff. It's, you know, the government who does all these evil things, which is like, <laughs> sure, the government's not great, but like they, they really aren't making a distinction between Chinese people and, 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 the, and the government. You know, it's, it's just a it's just a, a, a way for racists to try to pretend that um, the obvious really racist thing that they're saying, like referring it, it's to this. Their, it's their code speak. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, this kind of racist rhetoric uh, led to a very unfortunate event called the Chinese Massacre in 1871, and this happened in Los Angeles. In short, a police altercation in the district where Chinese people live led to the injury of a police officer and the death of a bystander, Robert Thompson, who tried to assist the police officer. Word spread throughout Los Angeles that the Chinese had killed Thompson, and a mob of 500 people, which at the time was about 10% of the population of Los Angeles, gathered and went to the district where Chinese people lived. The crowd proceeded to build a makeshift gallows and dragged the accused murderer and seven other Chinese victims out to be hanged. The mob then terrorized the Chinese people throughout the night. By the morning, 18 Chinese people were killed, and although a grand jury sent out 25 indictments for the murders, all were let go on legal technicalities. Wow. Yeah. So, like, one of the things I want to bring up is what worries me. You see these kind of events in history. You see how the rhetoric led to a massacre. It's directly directly related. And you see uh, uh, similar things happen today. Uh, uh, people are using xenophobic rhetoric. To and hatred of China, which has gone again. This didn't start with the coronavirus, but gone for a while. And um, it, it really started because whenever our country, which is an empire, has an enemy that it has decides to target, it starts ramping up the hatred of it. So you see it in World War One. You see the Germans are getting called Huns, and uh, they start getting dehumanized. You see in World War Two. You see. Uh, uh, Japanese people and German people getting dehumanized, Japanese people taking the brunt of it, really, in the United States, uh, to the point of internment camps. You see it with uh, the whole war on terror we mentioned before about Muslims being surveilled. But it goes back before 9-11 with with racist depictions of Arabs throughout uh, the Middle East, uh, partly because that's where our armies are going and ensuring control. And now you see China becoming a rising world power and the U.S. relative economic position declining. And there's a big existential fear among the ruling class that we'll lose the kind of uh, advantages and powers that we've had for so long. And they just basically lash out, hoping that people will turn outward instead of looking inward and seeing, like, what is our government doing or not doing for us? Yeah, it's a tale as old as time is find something to make it a split in the population, whether it's religion, whether it's race, whether it's your ethnicity, whatever it is, if you're able to blame you know one thing on one thing that that's bad in your people you know against someone else then you can just control them you know what i mean that's how you have religious wars that go on forever that's how you have race wars that go on forever because you put it in someone's head they're better than someone else and that gives you the right to treat that someone else however you see fit because you are more important you are better you are smarter whatever and it's just so despicable 
That's and, how we're, that's what we're seeing right now with the coronavirus stuff. It's like um, people are saying, you know, China did this to us. Like they purposely uh, unleashed the virus on the world, uh, which, by the way, to give you how illogical this is, uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, Vietnam and uh, Taiwan, all are very much closer to China, like directly bordering it have uh, um, much more contact with China and had less time to prepare than the United States and the Western world. And all of them have pretty much adequately addressed the coronavirus problem in their country, or at least much more adequately than the United States did. So how is it that these countries who are so much closer managed to, you know, not have a problem with how China yeah. dealt with it? And, and we who had a full two months or more to prepare did absolutely nothing. That's the kind of questions people and it's ask. A, and it's a blame game, too. It's, it's a blame game. You know, Trump is not going to want to take responsibility for this. So he's going to say China exactly. did it. It's China's fault. Like, exactly. Let's, let's issue tariffs. Let's, you know, let's there was go a, to a... <laughs> there was a leaked State Department memo um, from a couple of weeks ago that actually said that the State Department's issuing orders to, like, embassies everywhere... That the the messaging is this is China's fault. It's all China. We need to blame China on everything. And it's it's crazy. It, it, it's just again, it's a, it's a deflection. So yeah. events events like this massacre uh, and the rising xenophobia eventually led to a reaction on the national scale. Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and this formally banned Chinese people from emigrating into America and prevented them from obtaining U.S. citizenship. So around 1870, so a year before the Chinese massacre. Many Chinese uh, workers began looking eastward. Uh, this was partly due to the economic conditions in California, because as I was saying, it was like rising unemployment. But honestly, many Chinese people saw the writing on the wall, the increased racism against them, and the tensions between their communities and white communities did not make them feel welcomed in California. So on September 20th, 1870, 68 Chinese men and boys from uh, San Francisco, arrived in Belleville, New Jersey, to work at the Passaic Steam Laundry. Uh, these 68 Chinese people became the first ever Chinese community on the East Coast. And uh, Belleville actually has a long progressive history. It was uh, pro-independence from uh, from Britain and anti-slavery at times when even most towns in New Jersey were for remaining loyal to the king and keeping slavery legal. A historian at Princeton commented on the acceptance of the Chinese people in Belleville. Uh, and so just so it's not, I'm getting this from an article uh, written by April Shu called The First Chinatown on the East Coast. It's an excellent article if you want more information on this stuff. Take, check it out. So quoting this uh, historian, uh, Dr. Lou Williams, the treatment of Chinese in Belleville was exceptional for 19th century America. Rather quickly, the Irish workers and townspeople accepted these immigrants who were feared and loathed in other parts of the country. Their acceptance lasted for an unusually long period of time, five times as long as the Chinese experiment in North Adams, Massachusetts, and several years past the implementation of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. She pointed out that the events at Belleville provided a significant counterexample to the growing anti-Chinese movement in the United States during the late 19th century. Quote, it was a daily reality for 19th century Americans. Newspapers, politicians and next door neighbors bombarded Americans with anti-Chinese rhetoric. But somehow the people of Belleville did not succumb to the pressure of national xenophobia. For Dr. Lou Williams, the unique development in Belleville is both striking and encouraging. Even during a time of widespread racism, a small community was able to look beyond preconceived prejudices and open their town to outsiders. I think perhaps the large presence of Irish workers 
who were also loathed by Americans at the time, uh, contributed a sense of solidarity with the Chinese. That's that's probably my guess. Like, yeah, there was all, the whole like Irish do not apply, all that kind of stuff. Like, like these yeah. were hated workers as well. So when the Chinese arrived and they were hated and they so probably saw the anti-Chinese stuff, they knew that the uh, the stuff about Irish workers uh, was bullshit. And they were like, well, you know, maybe it's bullshit about Chinese. We get to meet these people firsthand. So by 1887, most of the people in uh, Chinese people in Belleville actually moved to Newark and established Newark's Chinatown. And then uh, later on uh, in October 22nd of 2016, the Belleville Historical Society hosted a dedication ceremony for the monument commemorating the first Chinese workers uh, uh, on the East Coast. So I thought this was just a really oh, cool Belleville. story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I thought it was cool because um, on the one hand, I had no idea that the first like I thought New York would have been the first Chinatown. Uh, that's what yeah. a lot of people think. I mean, it makes sense. It's a huge Chinatown. It's really great. Go there the next time you're able to uh, after this oh, stuff is sorry. over. No. Yeah. And um, uh, so on the one hand, it's really sad because the xenophobia, the massacres and just like the kind of stuff we're seeing repeated again, unfortunately. But I think it also provides like a hope because people in that time were able to move beyond it and provide a welcoming atmosphere for these these Chinese immigrants. And, and I think like New Jersey has the potential today to do something similar on a, like a wider scale beyond just one town. Like if we see the kind of if we see xenophobia, if we see uh, racism and prejudice, we have not only an obligation to pour, yeah to call it out, but also like do everything we can to help people who are most affected by it. And I, yeah. I unfortunately think that with uh, rising tensions with China, even beyond the coronavirus, the coming decades, it's going to be a lot of anti-Chinese rhetoric once again. And I think New Jersey is set up to because we're so diverse because we have we have people who have farmland we have major cities we have suburb we have everything and we have leadership now that recognizes and has not believed it was a hoax for this whole amount of time who has been doing whatever he could talking about murphy to set us up for success and to make sure that we have reporting coming every day about every figure related to covid-19 and I think we could have the opportunity to really come together because our neighborhoods are diverse. Like you can't get away with that kind of bigoted attitude if your neighbor is a different race, ethnicity, whatever than you. You know what I mean? You have to help your neighbor in this crisis. You have to look outside of yourself and see people as equal. And that's the thing like I'm trying to do in my neighborhood. And I'm trying to make sure that when I see my neighbors, I make sure to say hello because this is scary times. People are hoarding supplies and <laughs> panic shopping and freaking each other out. And those little nice things that you can do to remind each other that we're all human. We're all in this. And we have leadership that is really trying to prepare us in the best way possible. That's something that I think is really going to help us in the long run. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So one last thing I would like to add is after after 9-11, we had, there, there were 3000 Americans that died directly from the uh, terrorist attacks on September 11th. And you had a wave of anti-Muslim and Arab attitudes and Islamophobia and all, all that kind of stuff. We're looking at, on low estimates, 100,000 people prob probably dying from the coronavirus in, in the United States alone. That's more than 30 times on a low estimate, the death toll of 9-11. And what I fear is that we're going to have, a, there's going to be an impulse as we're already having this, this blame China will turn into a hostility towards Asian Americans and Chinese people on a scale that's this might even surpass what happened in from 9-11. And uh, but, but I do have a great hope because uh, people are much more like Trump has been so 
so terrible. bigoted and terrible <laughs> for so long at like his treatment of, of Jews, of Mexican Americans and all kind of Latinos, like all that stuff. Like people are very aware of this kind of hatred and they need to stay aware of it and don't get caught up in whoever the, the current state enemy is and just take don't take out your kind of like angers, frustrations and, and confusion and worry that you have about your place in society and like what's going on in the world at large on to innocent people in our own country that have nothing to do with what's going on. And they're yeah. just as worried and scared about what's going to happen to in their lives as you are. We have more in common than we do difference. Yeah. Yeah. That includes people even in China. We have yeah. more in common with Chinese people who've never been to America than we do with the rich people who rule over us and make decisions like this. A hundred percent. And unfortunately it's one of those things where even if you are a bigot, you have to realize that our own government is not protecting us. Like the, the finger pointing towards like the Chinese, like there's nothing you can say because we've had months to prepare. Like you need to take your bigoted mind and point it (laughs) at the people who are leading the country. Like this is wild. I agree. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. Be sure to share our episodes. Also, check out our Twitter at Jersey underscore matters and our Instagram Jersey Matters podcast for more Jersey related information, trivia and hot takes. Any suggestions uh, for segments also? Yeah, really excited about that. <laughs> if you have a if you think you have a cool story or something that's where you point us yeah, towards something that you think is worth covering, uh, let us. Let us know. and we'll, Or we even if you want to do a guest spot on the pod, we'd love to yeah. have you. Yeah. If you have something interesting to say, we'd love to have you. If not, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But <laughs> uh, signing off, this is Mike Perino. I'm Casey McLean. Thanks for joining us.